Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Good morning, Grant Memorial. Welcome to church today. Uh, And happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in our church family, to all the women in our church family. I hope that we will all have the opportunity to honor the special women and mothers in our lives today. Well, we are glad that you are here, and we pray that as we dig into the Word of God together, that God would be honored and that we as His church would be encouraged, challenged, and equipped Well, last week, uh, we started a new series in the New Testament letter of Galatians, and today we're picking up where we left off. Now, if you haven't had the chance yet, I encourage you to watch last week's message on YouTube or on our website, as last week's introduction provides helpful context for the the whole book that we'll be uh, studying for the next number of months. So that would be helpful for you, uh, just to set the context so we have a better understanding of, of where we're headed and what it is that we're reading. But this morning, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures as we continue to explore this letter of correction issued to the churches in Galatia from the very man who established them just a few years earlier. So would you turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, starting at verse 10. We're going to read right through uh, to the end of the chapter at verse 24. So here we are, Galatians 1, starting at verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I may preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to go consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, But I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed there with him for 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praise God because of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray today that as we dig into it, that as we learn, Lord, that you would teach us, that you would challenge us, you would equip us, and ultimately, Lord, that we would join in Paul with his words saying that, 
that you were praised because of us. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is an interesting text, right? It's more of a narrative than a theological explanation like we saw in the previous verses, right? It seems that Paul is sharing his testimony with the Galatian churches, which is peculiar because it seems that he would have no doubt, already shared his testimony with them at some point when he was living among them, teaching them the gospel and establishing churches there. So why, in this letter, a necessary letter to protect the gospel, does Paul feel the need to share his story rather than just get to the issue at hand? Well, as we read last week in verse 7, Some people, the text said, were throwing the Galatians into confusion and distorting the gospel. Uh, There were people, the Judaizers, if you remember from last week, who were teaching the Galatians that Paul's gospel, what he taught them, was incomplete. And that if Gentiles wanted to follow Jesus, they first needed to follow the Jewish law. They were distorting or calling into question the gospel that Paul had taught of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And they were adding works into that equation. They were eliminating the alones of Paul's gospel and demanding that the Galatians add specific works to the transaction of their salvation and Christian life. But that's not all that the Judaizers were calling into question. They were also questioning the legitimacy and authority of Paul himself. Not only were the Judaizers questioning Paul's gospel, they were questioning the man who taught it. I can just imagine the Galatians responding to these new requirements being taught by the Judaizers by saying, but Paul said, to which the Judaizers brought into question the authority and motives of of Paul. And we all know how that works, right? When someone disagrees with a view that we may hold, right? We we immediately look to see if they're a credible source, right? We seek to undermine their authority. Look no further than our current COVID crisis. We're constantly in a battle over credibility. This person is a doctor, so their opinion matters, says one side. To which the other side responds, sure, they're a doctor, but but they're in a different field of study, so they're not as credible. Or one side says, uh, you know, this person is a virologist, so they're credible. To which another side may say, yeah, but they're on record as having said something crazy 10 years ago, so they're not a reliable source. And back and forth it goes. We even do this in the day-to-day. We drop hints about our own credibility our experience, our education, when we feel that we may not be given as much weight as we should be, right? Well, when I played uh, semi-pro soccer, that defensive system wasn't very effective, right? We just drop that out there so people know how credible we are. Or as someone who has suffered through that condition myself, right, we gain credibility that way. Or, well, last year when I did that, Right? Even silly things like, well, I drink coffee every day, and that is not a good cup of coffee. Right? You get the picture. Credibility is important, and when we have it, we want people to know it. And when we disagree, uh, we seek to question the credibility of another source. 
And so what Paul is doing here in this section of this letter is defending himself against the attacks or questions of the Judaizers. He's addressing concerns about his credibility. He's essentially answering the question, why should the Galatians trust Paul? Right? Where does he get his authority? Why is his gospel the normative gospel to which all other teaching must align, including even the words of angels, as Paul said earlier on in verse 8? And so today, we're going to walk back through our text that we just read using this lens that Paul is defending himself and establishing his authority, his credibility to claim that his gospel is the truth. So again, the question we're considering is, why should the Galatians, and by extension us, trust Paul? Paul starts off this section, his defense, by stating that he can be trusted because his goal is to serve God. Right? His goal is to serve God. Verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Right? Paul says here, I have no other agenda. I don't have a, a people or a government or a movement to stay true to. I'm not receiving money from lobby groups. I, I don't just have a desire to tell people what they want to hear. Right? If I did, I wouldn't be traveling from place to place, getting beaten and imprisoned for what I'm teaching. Right? All I care about is serving and pleasing God, not Jews, not Gentiles, not Romans. I can be trusted because I don't care what man thinks. I'm representing God and God alone. The second thing that he says about his credibility is that the gospel he shares is not of human origin. His gospel is from God. In verse 11 and 12, he writes this. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul here is saying that he's not simply regurgitating something he learned Right? He was not simply an early convert who's now passing on the message of some other man. And, and that perhaps along the way, uh, what he changed, or what he heard had changed like in a game of telephone. No, Paul says, I'm not simply a student of Peter or James or a student of John. I myself received the gospel I passed on to you directly from the mouth of of Jesus Christ. Right? In the same way that you trust the apostles who learned directly from Jesus during his earthly ministry, you can trust me too because I heard the good news from Jesus Christ. And so my gospel is not my own. It is Christ's gospel. And to reject it is not to reject me, but rather is to reject the one who gave it to me, Jesus Christ. And then, uh, next, Paul goes on to share his story of how 
Jesus revealed the truth to him. So in our text today, he says this in verses 13 to 16. He says, you have heard um, of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So this is a a high-level overview of his story. Basically, it's a I was one way and then I met Jesus type of story. It was an I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Now, there's more to the story as it pertains to this revelation part, his encounter with Jesus. And we read about that encounter in the history book of the early church, the book of Acts. And so I want us to turn there, and we're going to quickly look at the way that Acts tells us that Paul encountered Jesus. Now, the story begins, uh, the story of Paul begins in Acts chapters 7 and 8, and What Paul said that we just read, what Paul said to the Galatians about himself persecuting the church is entirely true according to the history book of the early church. In fact, the first few times in Acts that we read about Paul, or Saul as he's referred to prior to his conversion, is that he is a bad guy, right? He's an enemy of the church. That's the first context we have for Saul or Paul is that he's a bad guy uh, and an enemy of what, is, uh, what the church is trying to accomplish. He's present and approving of the stoning of the early Christian martyr Stephen. He serves a central role in the severe persecution of the church shortly after. All right, and the first real reference to Paul, aside from a passing mention of his name at the martyrdom of Stephen, is in Acts 8.3, which says this. Saul began... To destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Okay, so that's how we're introduced to Paul. Right? That's what we know about him. Which brings us now to his conversion story and the revelation from Jesus that he's talking about in Acts chapter 9. You see, while Paul was on one of his persecution crusades... Everything changes. Let's take a look at it. Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Paul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, any Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. 
Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. What an incredible event, right? What an incredible story. I'd love to spend a couple of weeks just unpacking that story itself. Right? But really, it's the only thing that could change a man from fanatical persecutor to devoted servant. A genuine, authentic, miraculous experience with Jesus. Right? And so that's Paul's uh, initiation of his relationship with Jesus, right? His, his relationship began on the road to Damascus with a special and unique revelation of Christ, right? Paul did not hear about Jesus. He met Jesus, and he heard from him. But it doesn't seem like that was the extent of his time with Jesus either. At, at some point, Paul received the message, the gospel that he claims is from Christ, so we flip back to Galatians now and continue in our text at verse 16. Listen to what it says. My immediate response, so his immediate response to this incredible event of meeting Jesus was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. So, Paul says that when he became a follower of Christ, after this miraculous revelation, he did not seek out or receive instruction from men, nor did he sit under anyone's tutelage. Instead, he went by himself to Arabia for uh, likely, as the text says, nearly three years. Now, there are theories about what this time in Arabia looked like, with some suggesting that Jesus Christ himself served as his teacher, Others wondering if in solitude he spent time rereading the Old Testament that he was so familiar with as a devoted Jew, but this time under the lens of the gospel. But regardless, he did not sit under the teaching of a school of thought 
or a specific apostle. And when he did emerge back from Arabia, he taught a gospel that would fully align with the gospel of the apostles without ever discussing it with them. As John Stott says of this experience, Paul went into Arabia for quiet and solitude. We believe that in this period of withdrawal, he meditated on the Old Testament scriptures, on the facts of the life and death of Jesus that he already knew, and on his experience of conversion, the gospel of grace of God was revealed to him in its fullness. It has even been suggested that those three years in Arabia were a deliberate compensation for the three years of instruction which Jesus gave the other apostles, but which Paul missed. Now he had Jesus to himself, as it were, for three years of solitude in the wilderness. This time in Arabia proved to be very significant and where in, in some way the Spirit of God through Jesus Christ revealed the truth of the gospel to him. The same gospel that Paul would then pass on to the Galatians. So Paul is saying he's a trustworthy source because he's only trying to please God. And the gospel was imparted to him, not through human words, but directly by God through miraculous means through a revelation on the road to Damascus and through continued revelation in Arabia. Thirdly, Paul states that he, as opposed to those who were opposing him, the Judaizers, was commissioned by God. Right? He was commissioned by God. Uh, he continues in, in verse 15 and 16. God, who set me apart from my mother's womb... And called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. There's a so that in there, right? Paul did not receive the gospel just for the sake of his own salvation. But God commissioned him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. This wasn't his gospel, and it wasn't his own prerogative. God gave him the message, and God gave him the mission. Uh, we read this in the Acts text as well, after Paul's conversion. In Acts 9, 15, Jesus says to Ananias, if you remember, after Ananias had expressed fear of Paul, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and all the people of Israel. So Paul is appealing to the Galatians to say, I didn't just come here on vacation, right? Or because I had an urge to convert you. Rather, God sent me and commissioned me so you can trust the words that I taught you. Why would God send me to you with an incomplete message? I wasn't sent by men who had it wrong. I wasn't sent by a man who had an incomplete message. I was sent by God. I wasn't sent by a man or by men. Did that last statement ring a bell for you? If you tuned in last week, it, it should have. Look at the very first words we read in the letter uh, at Galatians 1.1 last week. This is the very first thing Paul, Paul wrote. He said, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man. 
but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Right? It's the very first thing he says. So even though we didn't acknowledge it last week, Paul was already defending his authority in his greeting. Right? The very first words he wrote, I am Paul. I am not sent by, man, by men, nor by a man. I am sent by God. Or by definition, I am an apostle. Now, what is an apostle? Right? Why is it important? How is making this claim defending his authority? Well, apostle literally means what Paul says that it means. Apostle means one who is sent by God. Right? Not sent by man, but sent by God. And so this is a unique sending, unlike how uh, many are sent today. Because we have not been called by God in the same way that the apostles were. So, for example, a pastor or a missionary today may be sent by Christ, commissioned by Jesus to do what it is that they are supposed to do. But they are called through men. By a church organization, uh, or church congregation, by a missions organization. Right? They're sent through men, or it's through men that they've received the gospel in the first place. Growing up in church or watching a Billy Graham crusade, right? God uses human institutions to call and send his people today. But apostleship in the New Testament church was a unique office or position given to those who, who were specifically chosen by the living Jesus Christ himself to establish and lay the foundations of the church. So not every follower of Jesus was an apostle. Not every church planter or missionary was an apostle. Not everyone with a specific gift was or is an apostle. Apostleship was a unique designation by Jesus Christ for specific men to carry out a specific function for a specific time. In the Gospel of Luke, we see this distinction clearly as Jesus commissions the apostles in the first place. In Luke 6, 12 to 13, we read this. One of those days, Jesus went to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. So Jesus here designates or assigns the office or position of apostle to 12 of his followers who we generally refer to these days as the 12 disciples. But did you notice the first part of that sentence? He called the disciples and chose 12 of them. Which provides a distinction between his disciples, a big group of people, and those to whom he gives the unique task of establishing the church, the apostles. As uh, preacher Alistair Begg says of these men, they were clearly distinguished, they were clearly set apart, and they were divinely commissioned. So the apostles in the New Testament church with this distinct role and function were the 12 chosen by Jesus. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Judas, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James 2, Simon, and Judas Iscariot. 
Now, if you follow the New Testament narrative, Judas Iscariot, after his betrayal and death, is replaced in Acts by a disciple named Matthias, who had also walked with Jesus for his entire ministry and was a witness to his death and resurrection. Now, the reason that we list these names is because the Bible does, right? Apostleship, in the way that we're discussing this morning, is not a general title or gifting. It was a a specific, special, divine role or position that was granted to specific men that we can name in one sentence. And it's to this group that Paul is adding himself. Right? It's, it's not, uh, he's not saying, right? Paul claiming apostleship here is not saying he's simply a good writer or a smart guy or a missionary with leadership capacity. He's not saying I'm an individual with an inspirational gift. He's literally saying that the unique authority that is granted to these 12 New Testament apostles applies to him as well. And that his words are the divinely inspired word of God because he has been called and commissioned by Jesus Christ himself the same way that the apostles were. Right? He has received both his gospel and his calling directly from Jesus Christ through no one else, which qualifies him for this unique office of apostle. And it is so important, church, that we understand the distinction, the the uniqueness of the apostles chosen and commissioned directly by Jesus as compared to anyone else we may be tempted to call an apostle. Because there are many today who are gifted uniquely, right? And, And who have been commissioned and sent by God to fulfill a role. And while perhaps inspired by God and certainly called, they are not to be held at the same level as the apostles of the New Testament. Uh, Timothy Keller writes of this distinction. He says, We might wonder, are there any more apostles today? Not in the full way of Paul and the Twelve. In the early church, others were called apostles of the churches. Barnabas was sent to Antioch, and in that sense was an apostle. However, while they were sent out as missionaries... They were commissioned by the other original apostles or by the churches, otherwise by man. Barnabas never met the risen Christ. He was never taught and tutored in the gospel by the bodily present Christ as Paul and the twelve were. So we can call people who have unusual leadership gifts then and now small A apostles, but Paul is a capital A apostle commissioned directly by Jesus. The capital A apostles had and have absolute authority. What they write is scripture. Did you catch that last part? What capital A apostles say is scripture. It is the inspired word of God and demands authority in the lives of all Christians. Whereas many uh, today, many called people, what they say is not to be revered at the same level as Scripture, right? And that brings us back to the, to the sola from last week, sola scriptura. We believe that what the Pope says is not to be held at the same level as Scripture. We believe that what a pastor says is not to be held at the same level as Scripture. We believe that what Max Lucado says, Francis Chan, C.S. Lewis, Martin Luther, insert your favorite preacher or author here, is not to be held at the same level as Scripture. 
There are wise, gifted, inspired leaders today, yes. But they are not apostles in the way Peter, James, John, the others, and Paul were, who knew the living God in the flesh, who received the gospel and their calling physically from Jesus and were tasked uniquely to set the foundation of the church and whose words we believe are infallible and inerrant. So is the book that you're reading truth? Sure. Well, maybe it depends on what you're reading. Is the preacher that you like filled with the Spirit? Again, it depends, but likely. Is the Holy Spirit working through gifted people today? Absolutely. But none of it is Scripture. And if it deviates from the teaching of the apostles... From the teaching of the New Testament, it is to be thrown out fast. Because the apostles were uniquely empowered to speak on behalf of and through the spirit of the one they knew face to face. So Paul here claims a title that was respected and revered, that is still respected and revered, that was understood as unique and carried absolute authority because he was commissioned by God. Now, all of this uh, talk of apostleship brings us to the next point that Paul makes regarding his credibility. He says that while he was not taught by the other apostles, he and his message were affirmed by them, right? He was affirmed by the apostles. Uh, look at verse 18 to 20. He says, then, so he goes to Arabia, and then he says, then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, or Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing is no lie. So Paul shares that he spent time in Jerusalem with the pillars of the church, the apostles Peter and James. And what came out of their encounter and a subsequent one a number of years later as we read in chapter 2 verse 6 is that they had nothing to add to Paul's message, right? That he needed to make no corrections or adjustments that his gospel was the very same that they had been commissioned with by Jesus Christ, right? What it is that he was taught by Jesus was what, what was revealed to him in Arabia was without blemish and was fully complete. So Paul's gospel is credible because it's been affirmed by the other apostles. Now notice, he's clear to say he did not get his gospel from them, just that the gospel he received from Jesus was the same as the one they had received. It wasn't the same in Revelation, but it was the same in unity. And then he goes on to say that they too affirmed his commission by God. In chapter 2, verse 7, it says, They recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised. Listen to this. Just as Peter had been to the circumcised. In the same way that Peter was tasked to build the church among the Jews, Paul was tasked to build the church among the Gentiles. So Paul here emphasizes that the gospel he teaches was not given to him by the apostles, but they affirmed it, which should enhance his credibility, and that his title apostle is valid 
and affirmed by those who also carry that title. Paul's basically saying, the pillars of the Jerusalem church are my references. You can ask Peter himself if you like, and he will affirm me. And finally, the fifth thing that Paul points out as proving the truth of what he's saying is his life change. His life has changed. Now, I'm not sure about you, but to me, the biggest proof of someone's legitimacy is their life. Right? If someone tells me to join them on keto, but I see them with a large fries and Coke, I might question their credibility. Or if I see a Mazda car salesman driving around in a Toyota, I might question his sincerity. Or if someone says that a new product has changed their life, but from where I stand, their life is a disaster, perhaps worse than it was before, I'll likely not believe or follow them. Right? Well, as we read earlier in the book of Acts, Paul's life took a significant 180. Right? How does one go from being feared by Christians to being endorsed by them? Well, it's the obvious life change as a result of meeting Jesus. Verses 21 to 24, he ends this part of the letter and he says, Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. Paul's testimony is the proof Paul is saying, you can trust me because I have lived this. I am walking in the freedom that I am preaching to you. It's like those old uh, hair club for men commercials. Do you remember those? Where invariably a man with glorious hair would come onto the screen saying, I'm not only the president of hair club for men, I'm also a client. And then a before picture of his bald head would flash on the screen. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Well, Paul's legitimacy is that he has been changed. He is also a member of the saved, right? He was once enslaved by the law, and now he is free in Christ. And the gospel that he preaches is that gospel of freedom that has freed him. The same freedom he desires for the Galatians is the freedom he himself is living in because of the grace of God and the truth of the simple gospel. He says, you can follow me confidently because I'm first in line on this journey. I was the one that people were afraid of. People from regions I'd never been knew me by reputation but came to see that I'm a new man and God has been glorified in my life. Do you see why this is so important to Paul? Why he so desperately wants to correct this wrongful teaching? Because he's been on the other side. Zealous about the law. Working for his own righteousness. And none of that saved him. But Jesus, who is generous in grace, met him changed him and sent him to share the truth of freedom to all who would receive. He moved from a slave to the law to a child of God, saved by grace through faith in Christ and absolutely nothing else. So 
Why did Paul share his testimony in a theological letter? Well, in part, because Paul's life is proof of the gospel he preaches. That we are not saved by works. Because if if we are saved by works, by our own effort, then Paul's zealous Judaism should have saved him. But it didn't. And if our works, what we do, has the ability to disqualify us from grace, then certainly his persecution of God's people would have sealed the deal. But it didn't. Paul wasn't saved through the works of the law, nor was he disqualified by his egregious sin. He was forgiven by Jesus and saved by Jesus that he may live for Jesus. And church... So are we. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this testimony. Lord, we thank you that we can listen in and read about how you miraculously changed a life. And God, I pray that you would help us to remember the way that you have miraculously changed ours. God, we may not have had a Damascus Road experience, but all of us have been changed. All of us are different because of your grace, because of your spirit in our lives. And I pray that we would remember that. We would remember what life was like before and the freedom that we have had since. And if we haven't experienced freedom, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to point out the things that we have put in the way of that, the things that we have added to the simple gospel. Help us to remove those things that we may live in the freedom that you have offered to us and as seen in the life of Paul. God, and I pray that as, as we continue reading this book, Lord, that we would accept Paul's apostolic authority that we would receive his words as the very words of God, that you, through it, over these next few months, would change us, that we would be different as a result of encountering your word as written through your apostle, your servant, Paul. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at grantmemorialchurch.com.